Hey, Aubrey. Hey, uh, Jake. Hello. Thanks uh, so much for, for making the time today. I really appreciate it. I've been uh, listening to you on podcasts for quite some time and just finished reading your book. Um, so it's it's a real privilege to uh, spend the hour today. Yeah, sure. No problem. So if you don't mind, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with you, anyone interested in uh, the longevity anti-aging space. Um, but for those who aren't as familiar, if you could just kind of provide, uh, you know, a background, uh, who are you, how'd you get into this field and, uh, what are you doing today? Sure. So, um, I am the chief science officer of a biomedical research charity based in Silicon Valley, California, and we're called Sense Research Foundation. We are focused on developing new medicines that will address the health problems of late life. And our particular focus is on the early stage of the development of medicines that will actually rejuvenate people. In other words, they will repair the damage that the body does to itself throughout life and that eventually makes us sick, um, rather than simply slowing down the clock, slowing down the accumulation of that damage. So this is, uh, of course, a divide and conquer approach to aging in the sense that aging consists of the accumulation of a lot of different types of damage and you've got to fix all of them because any one of them can kill you on its own more or less on schedule however well you fix all the others um so we do a lot of different different types of research some of them in our in-house laboratory in mountain view and a lot of them in universities and institutes where we fund the work of some professor or other um, we're also focused very much on taking projects to the point where they will be of interest in the private sector, specifically to angel investors, seed investors who are uh, looking for opportunities to take something into the commercial realm as a startup. And so I spend a lot of my time interacting with such groups, um, first of all, as a way to help us to spin up our own projects out. Uh, we've done that half a dozen times now. And secondly, because I also work very closely with a lot of other companies that have sprung up independently of us. So of course, doing closely aligned work. And it's, you know, it's a really exciting time to be doing this. I believe very strongly that aging is the world's number one problem. Uh, it's responsible for by far the most amount of suffering and death, of course. Um, of anything that we currently experience in humanity these days. And the sooner we fix it, the better. That's great. I appreciate the uh, introduction. I think a lot of people take some of the biggest problems we have for granted as it kind of is what it is. Uh, and that kind of is what makes them the biggest problem, something like aging that people just assume, you know, has to happen. Uh, but the second you realize you might be able to do something about it, all of a sudden you realize that would be, you know, one of the coolest things ever uh, to, to live for a long time. Well, that's right. Um, so, that's right. And of course, a lot of my work is uh, focused not just on the science, but also on outreach, you know, doing interviews like this, for example, that actually will help people to make that transition from presuming that aging is some kind of, you know, innate thing woven into the fabric of the universe that will, it's kind of off limits to medicine and realizing that no, it's actually just as amenable to medical intervention as anything else. We just have to develop those medicines. Right. And it's, it's interesting. I, I heard a term that you uh, placed on that called the pro-aging trance, where people find a way to come up with kind of illogical excuses and reasons why, oh, no, we can't live you know, past 100. That's only a few people can do that. And we can definitely not live past 120. That's just impossible. Um, yeah, but that of. there's no real biological or physical reason for it. And so could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. In fact, to be slightly more precise, I use the word pro-aging trance to describe something that goes hand in hand with this fatalism and the assumption that aging is immutable. Really, um, you know, the pro-aging trance is all about reasons that people have for presuming that aging is actually desirable, you know, that it's some kind of blessing in disguise. Um, and, you know, that somehow if we didn't have aging, then we would have other problems that would be even worse. Now, mm -hmm. if one looks in any kind, even slightly, at any of these so-called 
um, arguments, it's trivial to see that they're complete nonsense. But of course, the reason they persist and the reason they're so hard to eliminate from discussion is because people want to believe that as a way of kind of, you know, putting aging out of their minds and getting on with their miserably short lives and making the best of it rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing that they think is going to happen to them. And, you know, I have some sympathy with that attitude because the fact is until quite recently, it was perfectly rational to do that. Uh, because we didn't have any plan, you know, any real prospect of doing anything about aging in the foreseeable future. So, you know, it was a death sentence that was out there in the distant future for most people. And you have to put it out of your mind. But of course, now that we are within striking distance, it becomes an enormous part of the problem because it diminishes people's enthusiasm for, you know, having public money, for example, spent on the research so to make it go faster. Yeah, and it's interesting for me to think about, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young in my 20s and uh, so hopefully have some time for people to figure some of this stuff out. But it does change the way you think about how to live your life and what, you know, what one should do or what one could do uh, in middle age, for example. You don't need to be at the arc of your career or approaching the end of your career. You could just be getting started with something if you truly believe that, um, you know, I think, as you've said, there might be a 50% chance that we could hit, uh, you know, longevity, escape velocity, um, which would be great if you could kind of define for, for people listening um, sometime in the next 20 or 30 years, I think it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yes, let me do that. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, the focus at Sense Research Foundation is on rejuvenation therapies. In other words, therapies that actually repair and eliminate the accumulating damage of aging rather than just slowing down the subsequent accumulation. And that's very important to emphasize because not only is it obviously a better thing, you know, it's a, um, more effective on people who are already in middle age or older, um, but also uh, it's actually scalable because essentially what you're doing when you rejuvenate people, if they're already, let's say, 60, is you're buying time to figure out what to do when they become biologically 60 again, maybe when they're actually 90 or something. Uh, you know, if you mm -hmm. give people the same therapies at, at that time uh, that, that you gave them originally, then they won't work because the only reason somebody did get back to being biologically 60 was because of the imperfections in the therapies, the difficult damage that for whatever reason the therapies are unable to repair. Um, but, in fact, what's going to happen, of course, is that the therapies that will be given to this person to attempt to re-rejuvenate them at the age of 90 uh, will not be the same therapies. They will have benefited from 30 additional years of research and development. So they will actually be, you know, version 2.0, and they will succeed in repairing some, if not all, of the damage that version 1.0 was unable to repair. And so this, is, this term longevity escape velocity is something that I coined quite some time ago now. To, um, to denote the minimum rate at which we need to improve the therapies. In other words, the, um, the, the rate at which we need to make them more comprehensive and to approach perfection, even though they never need to actually reach perfection, um, in order to stay one step ahead of the problem. And, uh, my, right. and, and if you look at this, you know, of course, you've got to make a lot of assumptions about how rapidly things are going to happen and so on. But one way or another, it's impossible to come up with numbers that do not give you longevity escape velocity once we've got 20 or 30 years of healthy life from version 1.0. So that's why I don't really think in terms of longevity at all. I only think in terms of health. I'm interested in keeping people healthy for as long as possible, and the better we can do it, the more chance we have of indeed getting to that point where we're staying one step ahead of the problem. Right. So the interesting parallel that I've heard made, I think you made it yourself, was to flying. Obviously, humans have wanted to fly for, uh, you know, as long as we've not wanted to die, I'd say. And uh, it was only in, you know, 100, 120 years ago that the Wright brothers finally figured it out. And from there, there was a lot of progress very quickly, similar to what you expect, it sounds like, from aging or what we see with, you know, a lot of meaningful technologies in history like the Internet and otherwise. Um, so I guess the question is for someone who gives the benefit of the doubt, like myself, that once initial progress of a significant, you know, degree is made, um, like the Wright brothers flying the first planes, 
uh, once that's made, I, I have confidence that we can progress quickly, as you say, um, you know, accelerating over time. But what gives you confidence that we're close to that initial moment, um, given there's a lot of pieces at play here, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to uh, over the course of the conversation? Yeah, absolutely the right question, because you're totally right. The um, progress of any technology goes through these two very contrasting phases. First of all, there's the phase where you have yet to make the fundamental breakthrough that gets the thing to work in some form. And then after that, there are the progressive sequence of incremental refinements and improvements of the technology that make it work better and better. So that second phase is pretty reliable. Once you've got the fundamental breakthrough, you know, stuff happens um, at a rather rapid and rather steady rate. It's driven really only by public demand, and there's not going to be any shortage of that in this case. Um, so, yeah, that's what we saw, of course, with Powered Fly. But before that, you just really don't know. So, of course, there were people in 1900 saying, I mean, eminent physicists saying that powered flight was theoretically impossible. That it was just not going to happen ever. But equally, we can't just say, you know, eminent people are always over-pessimistic. It's not true. If you go back, you think, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was coming up with designs for powered flight. And he probably thought that he was only a few decades away. He probably didn't think it was going to take 400 years. So you just don't know. And when I talk about these predictions, I always make that clear. I always say that, yes, I think we have a good chance of getting there quite soon, but it's only a chance. I think we have a 50-50 chance of getting to longevity escape velocity within the next 15 years or so at this point. But I think we've got at least a 10% chance of not getting there for 100 years. Right. And actually, I was going to ask about that because it was something interesting uh, in reading your book. There's two seemingly um, contrasting beliefs that you seem to hold probabilistically. Um, but I, I had a feeling that you could reconcile them. And so it was exactly like you said, that um, you thought there was about a 50 percent chance that we're 20 years away from that longevity escape velocity. But at the same time, you wouldn't bet that there was a 90 percent chance we'd be there in 100 years. Um, so yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting. And I think that, it, go, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, the, the long tail of these probabilities is no surprise at all, because the fact is the, long, the more um, unforeseen obstacles you encounter that slow you down, the more time there is for more unforeseen obstacles to, to come along. So it's bound to be a long tail of the probability distribution. Right. And I think that to me, that adds credibility to the argument is that, you know, anyone who shuts it down and saying, oh, that's, you know, that's silly to believe that. Look, we're not saying it's, it's guaranteed by any means, but what percent chance do we have of that happening? And then there's got to be a reasonable argument there. And you're proposing 50, which I personally don't find unreasonable. And you obviously know a whole lot more than I do about it. Um, and I understand, you know, some more conservative scientists might think it's a lot less than that. Uh, and some people quietly might think it's more than that. Uh, but I think it takes the whole premise of what you're doing and um, really makes it pretty reasonable from my perspective. Great, great. Um, taking a step back, I think it's important uh, for people who aren't as familiar with the approach that you're taking to just go over at a high level, um, you know, the different problems that need to be solved to solve the overall problem of aging. And it's a framework that's been, you know, you kind of outlined in the first place, but has been generally agreed upon since then, um, you know, sure, with yeah. minor differences here and there. So if you could kind of go through that a little bit, that'd be super great. Sure. So, yes. Yeah. So when I came into the field in the nineties, um, really it can, the, the approach to intervention, in other words, actually doing something about aging and keeping people healthy and youthful for longer than normal, uh, for, fell into two camps. First of all, there was what I'm going to call the geriatrics camp, geriatric medicine camp, which was essentially to treat the illnesses of late life, of old age, just like infections, to try to cure them. Um, and, you know, this just wasn't, was not working. And kind of, it was obvious why it was not working. First of all, there's just so many of them and they happen at more or less the same time and the complexity is overwhelming. But also, and perhaps more importantly, the fact that these illnesses are consequences of the, um, of, of, of being alive, you know, of the accumulation to, a, to an intolerable level 
of various types of damage in the body that um, is you know, accumulating since before we're born. So any geriatric therapy is kind of certain, kind of, kind of bound to become progressively less effective as people, as, as people get older. Um, okay, so the other camp emerged maybe a century or more ago now, and it's really the foundation of the whole field that calls itself gerontology, the study of the biology of aging. People, a few people began to realize that, no, you just, this is never going to work. We've got to be more preventative. We've got to intervene at an earlier stage in the chain of events. And so the idea of gerontology was really to, to capitalize on the variability that we see in nature, the variation between different species or even individuals within a species in terms of the rate of aging, the rate at which this damage accumulates. Um, and as, um, you know, as we study more and more, the hope was that we would understand more about that and eventually be able to translate it into therapies that would essentially make the body run more cleanly and generate damage more slowly than it naturally does which is a great idea mm -hmm. in principle. But the problem with it is that the creation of damage is so absolutely intrinsically integrated into the metabolic processes that keep us alive from one day to the next that we really can't afford to interfere with. So it's just not going to happen. You just can't stop damage from being created. So I came along and in, in the year 2000, I, I was the first person to observe and to promote the idea that maybe there's a kind of sweet spot between those two alternatives, which is to not wait until you get sick, but also not to try and stop damage from being generated. Instead, to go in and eliminate the damage, repair the damage before it gets to the point that is more than what the body is set up to tolerate. And the reason I was able to um, persuade myself and eventually everybody else that this was a feasible approach was because I was able to classify all of the many types of damage that the body does to itself into a manageable number of categories, just seven categories, for each of which there is a kind of generic therapy that can be applied that will actually eliminate this damage. And when I say generic, what I mean is within the category there may be a bunch of different examples of damage, but each of them will can be addressed with a therapy that, you know, is, basically the same across the board, only differs in detail. So one example would be loss of cells, where in a certain tissue, cells may be dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. If that happens, then, um, of course, the number of cells progressively goes down, and eventually there are not enough cells for the organ to do its job, uh, and you fix that with stem cell therapy. You know, you just put cells into the body that you're prepared in, in the laboratory into a state that is what you want them to do so that they can be injected and they know how to uh, divide and then transform themselves into replacements for the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. That's, a that's one of the seven categories. So a lot of people took a while to understand what I was really talking about. They said, hang on, this is a divide and conquer therapy and they couldn't really see what, how it was different from the geriatric approach. But eventually after a while, especially after people began to understand a number of technologies that I was uh, leveraging that had been developed outside of gerontology for completely different purposes, um, you know, it became progressively more understood. And in the past 10 years or so, it's really been completely mainstream and orthodox and people have been reinventing it in slightly different forms, as you say. So, you know, I don't have to persuade scientists anymore that this makes sense. And of course, over the past few years, that's why we've now seen investors coming on board because they see that the science has moved to a point of sufficient proof of concept that at least if you're um, comfortable with high risk, high reward investments, then you might actually be able to make quite a lot of money. Right, and I understand that each of these seven categories that you kind of broke it down into is progressing, you know, it's at a different state in its evolution towards fixing the damage. Um, oh, yeah. So I so, would love to hear your take on, you know, where we are in, in each category or which categories you expect to kind of come in first and whether they can on their own, you know, if you have stem cells um, really well researched and working um, in human in trials and, and launched to the public, um, you know, how many of these things can we start to see noticeable change? So it's all happening. I mean, I, I'm delighted to be able to say that every one of these seven categories is moving forward at a respectable rate. 
a couple of them, you know, and even five years ago, I couldn't say that. You know, we've been banging away at them for a long time, but they weren't really yielding. Now they are. So that's great. But of course, some of them are further along than others. Stem cell therapy is certainly the one that's furthest along. But some other things, like, for example, the elimination of senescent cells, those are things that are now in clinical trials as of a year or two ago. And um, some things are going to be in clinical trials within a year or two. The elimination of amyloid, for example, um, molecular waste products that accumulate in the spaces between cells. Even the elimination of the much more um, robust and recalcitrant uh, waste products that accumulate inside cells. That turns out to be a harder problem, and we are solving that using the um, uh, using using genes that come from bacteria. This is actually a technology that we stole from environmental decontamination. So that's going to be hmm. in the case of macular degeneration, for example, that should be in clinical trials within a year or two. Also in the case of atherosclerosis, we're hoping the same kind of time frame. There are some things that are harder. One thing we definitely feel we need to fix is the problem of um, mitochondrial mutations. So mitochondria are this very important component of cells that does the chemistry of breathing where it combine, they combine oxygen with nutrients in order to extract energy from the nutrients. And that is the, main, the cell's main source of toxic molecules called free radicals, um, which damage the mitochondrion's DNA. The, DNA. the mitochondrion is the only part of the cell that has its own DNA. So we're trying to fix that by essentially putting backup copies of that DNA into the nucleus, and it's a very hard problem. So we're making good progress on it, but it's still a few years from clinical trials. Um, all right, so yeah, those are the kinds of things. But one thing I do want to emphasize in, yeah, before I finish this answer is that it's not just getting these individual technologies working. We then have to combine them. We have to actually do um, you know, all of these things to the same people at the same time in order to get the real results. Um, and of course, initially, we have to do things to, you know, multiple things to mice all at the same time. And that will take a little longer because, of course, we will come across unforeseen interactions between the therapies and so on. And um, so, yeah, that's, quite, that's why it's still quite a way to go. Great. And so one, one analogy I've heard you make that um, makes a lot of sense to me for explaining it quickly and easily is um, you mentioned before, we're not trying to slow aging. You're trying to basically reverse it at certain points uh, intermittently and, and repair it. And you compared it to a car, uh, how you can get a given car, you know, you can get 100 years out of a car if you take care of it and uh, you can take care of it as well as you want, but you're going to need to do maintenance from time to time. Uh, and, you know, you can figure out how to fix the engine to take what you just said a little further. But if you don't know how to deal with, uh, you know, the tires or whatever it is, then the car is not going to work. Um, so is that is that a fair analogy to take that and apply it there? It certainly is. Yes, it's a very good analogy. In fact, a lot of people think it isn't. You know, they think, well, okay, hang on, a car is so much simpler. And yes, that is a difference between cars and humans, but it's only a difference of degree. It doesn't change the analogy. Or some people will say, well, you know, the thing is, humans have self-repair machinery and cars don't. And that's kind of true, but it's a good thing. It makes it easier for us because anything that the body is able to repair on its own is something that we don't have to repair with medicine, right? So that, yes, the key reason why the analogy is good is because cars are, not, are never designed to last 100 years. The cars that we have today that were built more than 100 years ago and are still working just as well as when they were built, you know, they were designed to last maybe 10 years or 15 at the outside. So this really shows us that preventative medicine can work. Preventative maintenance, the sky's the limit. There's no reason why a car that's 100 year old today shouldn't live another 100 years after that, because we know what to do. The only problem with the human body is that at this point, because it's so much more complicated, we still have some work to do to actually develop these therapies. But once we do, we'll be done. Right. Um, and, and so it's interesting to me. I mean, it seems so, so clear. Obviously, it's a very difficult problem, but I understand the key, the key issue with, you know, the, the restraint on progress for years for you and, and people in, in the space has been funding more than anything else. Um, and you look at solving a problem like that where you figure out how to do maintenance on a car you figure out how to repair uh and restore um you know and sometimes removing damage from the human body uh to add several and dozens and years of to life potentially uh over and over again a repeatable process 
and you compare that with uh, the vast majority of funding that's going to, uh, you know, for good reason, terrible diseases, uh, cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you name it. Um, and hopefully some of that stuff might translate over to, to help people uh, trying to solve aging. But you look at those issues and my understanding is that each one, even if, you know, we totally got rid of cancer, figured out a way that it wouldn't make people suffer or die anymore. It only adds a few years of life because they're just going to die from the next thing. And it's probably not going to be pretty that way either. Um, do you, how do you overcome this issue? And, and do you think it's stemming from that um, trance where people are willing to kind of take on these terrible diseases, but aging is kind of an untouchable thing for some reason? Yeah, I think that's basically it. Yes, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, in a, in a way, one way to say this is that people are clinging to the idea that there is some kind of distinction between the so-called diseases of old age and aging itself. And they don't really have a good definition of aging itself because there cannot be a good definition of aging itself that actually gives you that distinction uh, because there is no such distinction biologically. You know, biologically, a disease, so-called, can only be a disease of old age if it is a consequence of having been alive a long time, of having you know, something that's been going on throughout life without initially having any symptoms. And that makes it absolutely part of aging. So it's a ridiculous distinction. Uh, yet it's kind of a distraction. You know, people feel so good about the fact that governments and everyone are spending so much money trying to develop so-called cures for these so-called diseases. And they think that's the way to go because it means that they don't have to think about this other thing called aging itself, which is going to get them anyway. But you're totally right. If however many of these so-called diseases we fix, we've still got the stuff that we have chosen not to give a disease-like name to, um, that also is an exponentially increasing risk of sickness and eventual death. And therefore, you know, we're getting very little. And therefore, the best way to go yeah. about eliminating these so-called diseases is to recognize that they are actually just parts of aging itself and therefore go after aging itself, which is what we're doing. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you talked about a few companies that you've spun out um, from SENS that I'm assuming have just kind of outgrown the program and are ready to raise money on their own and, and proceed on their own while SENS focuses on some of the earlier stage stuff. Uh, would you mind talking about a few of those spin outs that are seeing some early success? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I wouldn't say outgrown, more so we say they've graduated because, um, you know, once a, once a project gets to a point where a, a, an early stage investor can kind of join the dots and see how in due course it will actually um, make money, you know, they are um, in a position to, it, 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 the, the investors are willing to write much bigger checks than donors are by and large. So absolutely, mm -hmm. this is what we do. So probably our most successful example is iCore Therapeutics, I-C-H-O-R. It's based in upstate New York. And it started a few years ago by taking um, the uh, work that we were doing on macular degeneration. So macular degeneration is driven by the accumulation in the back of the eye of a molecule, which is a kind of byproduct of the chemistry of vision. Um, which is created at a slow but steady rate as a consequence of the way that we actually absorb light and transmit it to neurons. And um, eventually there's so much of it that it over overwhelms the cells in the back of the eye. So if those cells were able to destroy that chemical, then this wouldn't happen. And so we are giving them the ability to do that. Uh, at the point that we created the company, um, that we had almost completely solved this problem in the lab, but not quite. And the, let this very brilliant um, guy that was working for us decided he knew what to do next. So we let him create a company. We gave him the intellectual property and a bit of the equipment and so on. And uh, we took a small percentage of the equity and he went out and got investment. And the company now has more than 50 people. They're doing not only that, but also a bunch of other things. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's fantastic. So yeah, that's, that's probably our flagship spin out so far. So you said you, you held on a little equity in that. I know SENS is uh, totally based on uh, philanthropy as far as fundraising. Uh, can you take some of that equity and, and put it back into the program as well? In principle, yes. 
Um, so yes, we're a 501c3 public charity, which means that um, donations to us are, of course, tax exempt. Uh, that also, the, the, the flip side is that, of course, there are plenty of rules that we have to obey in order to maintain that tax exempt status. But one thing we are allowed to do is to have, uh, have stakes in companies. Uh, we're not allowed to speculate exactly, but this doesn't really count as speculating, especially because the, um, the stake that we take is always rather small. And that's because we, um, we recognize that these companies are very early stage when we, when we spin them out. And therefore, it's going to be quite a while before they turn into any kind of revenue. As such, our thinking is really, we, we only take an equity stake really in order to give other investors confidence that we, that we mean it. Um, we, uh, our main thing is we don't want to dilute other investors too much. So, because we don't expect that it's going to be our major source of income anytime soon. Mm -hmm. and, and let's talk a bit about uh, how you have funded Sense, because it sounds like a, a pretty impressive story and, and one that you've certainly invested your, your life and your money in. Um, uh, from my understanding, you pretty much seeded it uh, with a large inheritance and just kind of dumped it all into the to the SENS program um, and then we're able to raise some money from other brand name investors uh, Peter Thiel I think is one that I remember uh, and now you know some of those people and, and your money has gotten you kind of over the bridge to the point where you have some of these companies spinning out and probably some more credit and momentum uh, on the funding front uh, but probably less than, than you'd want, I imagine. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so, so there, are, there are a few details of that that you haven't quite got right. So um, actually, Peter Thiel came first. Uh, he was our first major invest, major donor, uh, starting back in 2006. Uh, of course, we already had grassroots donations, people you know, giving us $100 a month or whatever, and we still have plenty of them, um, an increasing number of them, in fact, so that's fantastic. But most of our income still comes from a small number of wealthy donors who keep us going. And Peter was the first of those. Um, so I did actually put a lot of money in, yes. My mother died in 2011. And um, uh, uh, she, I was her only, only child. And um, she, so I inherited two very expensive houses in the centre of London, which sold for a lot of money. And I gave uh, more than three quarters of that uh, the proceeds for those houses into the foundation. The way we chose to spend that money was over a period of five years, about a couple of million dollars per year. And that more or less doubled our budget for that time. We were already getting one and a half, two million dollars from other sources per year. And so we were able to get quite a lot done that would not have happened otherwise. And by the time that money ran out, which was basically 20, by the end of 2016, um, we had just about been able to start the process of bringing in money from additional new donors, in particular um, uh, a wealthy man also from the IT world named Michael Grieve from Germany, decided to start donating a million dollars a year to us. And since then, there's a few others that have come in. But still, it doesn't add up to anywhere near enough. So we've turned a corner in the sense that because we have been able to spin some projects out, that's great. You know, those companies, those projects now get much better funding because they're in the private sector. But we still have quite a few projects that we do within the foundation and which are still very, very underfunded because our overall um, budget you know, hasn't really increased. In fact, if anything, the emergence of the private sector has actually made it a little bit harder for us in the foundation because Many of the people who were giving us money early on, like Peter, for example, um, you know, they're really that psychologically they are much more comfortable investing rather than donating, and they only donate when they really have to. And now they don't have to; they can invest instead, right? Um, right. So actually, Peter doesn't give us any money anymore. And is that basically why is that there's you know options in the market that might give returns that they can actually invest in projects that are closer to market? Right. I think basically, to some extent, Peter thinks he's done his bit philanthropically and now he'll um, you know, do what he knows better. And so now you've got, uh, I understand, the creator of Ethereum on board as one of the biggest supporters. Is that right? That is right, yes. So Vitalik Buterin is actually an exception in the sense that he is uh, the only one of our major donors who only donates. 
I don't think he does any investing at all. He just doesn't feel, um, you know, he's got better ways to make money. And, um, you know, uh, and so he just basically trusts us to get it right. Uh, yeah, so he donates a substantial amount to us each year. That's great. And I definitely hear more about it. Um, I first got interested in the space in uh, 2017, I guess, uh, and hadn't really heard anything about it before then. And now it just seems to be coming up a little bit more. So I think it's great that uh, hopefully the, the funding will come along with the attention. Um, and, and on that point, um, it seems that you expect it'll kind of all come on at once. Uh, once we have substantial proof, proof in, in mice. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you see that kind of escalating very quickly? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's all really to do with herd mentality. You know, people at this point, they kind of know that this is coming. You know, there's a reason why everyone, why, why I'm constantly on, the, on camera, on stage, why I get so many invitations and people are so fascinated by this work. Uh, it's because, you know, ultimately they really want to benefit from it. And they have this gut feeling at the back of their minds that it might be in time for them. But they're terrified of getting their hopes up. So they don't really want to think about it too deeply. They want to kind of keep an emotional distance from it. And of course, the, now that's a very fragile psychological state to be in. As, as time goes on, little bits of progress are made and experts in the field start to say slightly more optimistic things. You know, it becomes more and more impossible to maintain this fatalism and eventually it's all going to crumble. And it's going to crumble really fast. It's going to be just like a dam breaking, um, I believe. What's going to happen is that there's going to be a few little more additional advances in the laboratory that are going to be enough to get my colleagues in academia to say the same kind of things on TV that I say already. You see, I'm in this very privileged position where my money comes from people who don't have, don't have to cover their asses. They can just... Um, you know, do what they like with their own money. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. most of my, well, pretty much everyone else in the field who is an acknowledged expert and who speaks publicly a lot about this field, most of their money comes from government grant applications, right? And they cannot afford to be characterized as saying irresponsible things to the media, even if what they're actually saying is not irresponsible at all. If somebody, somebody says they're being irresponsible, that will be enough to sink their grant application and they can't afford that. So they have to be very conservative in what they say. But we can already see that changing. Um, so the example I like to give these days is David Sinclair, who's a great friend of mine, another very prominent gerontologist. Um, he, he's always been somewhat out on the edge relative to most of the academics in this field. He's a professor at Harvard. But he really um, went a big step further last year. He wrote a book whose subtitle was Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. Now, you know, he couldn't have written a book like that 10 years ago with that title with, uh, and kept his job, basically, because it was that difficult to say things like that. And now you can. So I think within a couple of years from now, we're going to see most people in the field, most acknowledged experts, publicly saying things like that. And when the center of gravity of public expert opinion is that optimistic, rather than what it is now, where it's just this one guy with an English accent and a beard saying these things, right? Um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be possible for people like Oprah Winfrey to get ahead of this kind of thing and say, well, you know, we ought to do it faster than really and save a few lives. And, you know, the, uh, the following day after that, it's going to be impossible to get elected unless you have a manifesto commitment to spend proper money on this. So yeah, it's going to be extremely sudden. And once that tide kind of turns, you see it as being, you know, within striking distance to get to this longevity escape velocity. Right. And do you have any projections as to kind of how that'll unroll? Well, of course, you don't know exactly, but I have a fair idea of what kind of magnitude of advance is necessary. Because, of course, you know, gerontology is a small field. We all know each other. In fact, if you look at the number of people who are senior and prominent enough that they get on TV a lot, you know, there's less than a dozen of us. So and we're all good friends. You know, we know exactly where each other's heads are and what each other's priorities are and so on, and what's impressive and what isn't. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty pretty good bet that within the next three or four or five years, that tipping point is going to happen. 
Uh, who else is it? You mentioned it's like about a dozen people. I, I read David's book that you mentioned, uh, obviously yours, familiar with Laura Deming. Um, what are some other names that people should look into who, who's interested in learning more about all this? Well, if we're talking about actual, uh, you know, credentialed experts in the biology of aging, then the people that spring to mind are people like Brian Kennedy, Mir um, Barzilai. Uh, you know, there are people um, who kind of have been prominent for a while, perhaps less so now, like Lenny Garente, uh, Cynthia Kenyon. Uh, you know, not very many of these people. Um, Laura is an interesting case. So she, of course, is a, a bit of a child prodigy. She created the venture, the first longevity-centric venture fund uh, about five years ago, uh, when she was still a teenager, I think, actually. And um, it had tiny amounts of money at first, but invested very well and basically showed the thing was possible. And now she has enormous influence. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, so she should, because she's really, really smart. Yeah, that's actually, that was my introduction, uh, was I read something from Laura, I think it was like her original FAQ, uh, which was pretty interesting, and then was able to reach out and went to one of their first meetings out there in San Francisco, and definitely felt like it was the beginning of of something important, uh, very important, arguably the most important. Uh, little did I know you had written a book about it 10 years earlier, so, um, but it's definitely a, a good thing that I think a lot of people um, just simply aren't really familiar with yet. So like I talked to a couple of my friends about it, uh, just letting them know that I was going to talk to you and, and something like that. And they just have no idea that this is something that people are working on. Um, so I think, you know, you're obviously in it and you see a lot of people working on it and increased kind of belief and acceptance that this is something that's legitimate, but on public, it's still pretty quiet from my perspective. Um, and I guess when when the wave comes, that that should all hopefully change. That's right. Uh, so I think it's kind of interesting. Speaking of that, um, you know, herd mentality. Uh, obviously, we're in a pretty unique situation right now, uh, and for the past several months with COVID, um, I'd be curious if that has changed your perspective for better or worse in any way mainly um, given that kind of it, it got this rush of attention and obviously still gets it's all over the press and everything like that but people have kind of gotten used to it and adapted and there's other issues that are coming to light just months later not even you know we haven't really dealt with the thing um, do you see you know do you have any concern about I guess humans and society and maybe the media narratives attention span to where someone like Oprah Winfrey does talk about this stuff and maybe it just kind of surfaces to the light and people get all gung-ho about it for a little bit and then sort of just it gets old for them no pun intended yeah not really no I mean if that were likely then you would already see that with me you know I've been in the public eye for a long time now I started doing I did 60 Minutes in 2006, for example. I've been on Barbara Walters and Colbert and so on. And that was all more than 10 years ago. And it didn't die out. You know, I'm still doing top, you know, high-profile media. People still seem not to have lost interest. Um, and I guess you can see this in other medical areas. So the war on cancer is a great example. It was really, you know, a mistake in the sense that scientists became very much too over-optimistic about how close they were to really bringing cancer under proper medical control back in the 19, early 1970s. And they took this all the way to getting Nixon to announce this thing called the war on cancer, which basically consisted of troubling the budget of the National Cancer Institute. Um, and, you know, progress was very much slower than what was expected. But even then, you know, there had been no public political pressure to you know, to, 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 to reduce the budget of the NCI. It's carried on going up year on year ever since then. Um, so I think once the, once the public have the bit between their teeth about something that's so important as this, then I think it's going to stay there. Yeah, and, and to your point, I think, you know, not only are you still making the rounds, but it sounds like from pretty much any way you look at it, the momentum has been growing quite a bit. Yeah. Um, all right, last few questions, if you don't mind, uh, before we wrap yeah. up a little bit. Um, 
so if you know a lot of people obviously are going to react to this for the reasons kind of you said that to expect to live for let's just say 150 years to make it even less of a claim um people kind of react harshly to that because they don't want to get their expectations up um if you're going to play more of a a logical devil's advocate do you think there's just no way to do that or you know how would you counter yourself <laughs> i don't know if you've ever answered that question but oh yeah people ask me that no there are no good answers to what i say it's definitely all just true and all of the so-called good answers are just like as i say ways to put it out of one's mind so you know what I, my, my approach to getting people to, to be more rational about this is just repeat advertising really right um, and then another thing that I, I heard you said that was pretty interesting uh, was someone asked you, I guess, about, you know, they're talking about whether you wanted credit for certain things and stuff like that. And you said, uh, I believe you said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't plan on having a legacy because I don't plan on dying. And that's obviously a, a pretty interesting thing to hear. Um, I spoke earlier about kind of planning a little bit differently in life based on, you know, making certain assumptions about how long you live and, you know, maybe it's 50% chance I'll die when I'm 80 and 50% chance I live forever. Um, is this something that affects kind of the way you operate daily? I know you're just kind of chugging along with this, with this fight and doing everything you can, um, including, you know, coming and talking to me. Um, does it really impact or are you just kind of doing what you're doing and seeing what happens? Uh, well, it impacts in a different way, actually. So, <clears throat> um, actually, the, you know, I've talked about how there's going to be this tipping point in a few years when, um, you know, when, when everything, when there's going to be suddenly, you know, an abandonment of this pro-aging trance and all of these irrational arguments, and we're going to have a headlong war on aging. Um, but one thing that is pretty clear to me is that there are going to be at least certain large sectors of society that had better be ready before that happens. They'd better see it coming. So what I like to call it is they need to anticipate the anticipation of the end of aging. Um, and in particular, what I'm talking about here is the financial services sector. Because if you think about it, a lot of the really big ticket items, the things that people spend a lot of their money on, come down to choices made on the basis of how long they expect to live, right? So your health insurance, or your life insurance, or your, um, your pension, or your inheritance arrangement. And, you know, if, if you're going to go pretty much overnight from a point of view that says you're probably going to live only slightly longer than your parents did, to a point of view that says you're probably going to live vastly longer than your parents did, then um, you know that's going to have consequences for what kind of products you want of that of that sort, and if people aren't ready, you know these are things that underpin the global economy. So it's going to have a kind of COVID scale, um, you know, impact. We don't need that. So when I, so I get a lot of invitations to speak to um, you know pension funds and banks and so on, and this is what I tell them. And you know I don't know whether they're going to start taking me seriously quite soon enough to be able to actually anticipate the anticipation. But the ones who do are the ones that are going to prosper, and the ones who don't are the ones that are going to go bankrupt. Yeah. So just kind of coming on board and and being ready to adapt. I think that probably applies pretty widely in terms of you know if you if you can get a better idea of what's coming and prepare for it. Uh, hopefully it sets them up to succeed. Yeah, exactly. And beyond that, the financial impact of, of all this is going to be pretty profound, right? I mean, um, the vast majority of healthcare spending is on people in old age. And if you can prolong that or put that off, and ideally these, these maintenance tactics are, uh, or ther therapies are a little bit, uh, you know, hopefully more cost effective over time, especially as technology advances that should have a pretty profound in, impact, I would think, for, in, in a positive way, uh, just in terms of the global economy. Well, that's right, yes. And this is, of course, why I believe that these therapies are going to be available for free to anybody who's old enough to need them, whether or not they have the ability to pay, because it will pay for itself so fast and so many times over 
that it would be economically suicidal for any country not to front load the investment necessary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so Aubrey, I appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Uh, and I, I do want to give you the last word uh, if you want to talk about, you know, what you're working on, what you're doing, or just how you're holding up through all this. Um, would let you, well, I'd love to let you close it. Uh, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Well, sure. Yes, thank you. And of course, you've asked all the right questions. Um, essentially, you know, what I care about is getting this done as quickly as possible. So as to save as many lives as possible. Let's remember that roughly 110,000 people die every day. And as I've mentioned earlier, um, you know, of aging, that's more than 70% of all deaths of the like 160,000 people who die in total. Um, and uh, of course, it's not just the death, as I mentioned earlier, it's all the you know, enormous amount of disease and decrepitude and dependence and general misery that precedes it. And that's what I want to deal with. Uh, so the only way that one can justify not doing that is if you think it's impossible. And, you know, we now know, absolutely, we know that it's not impossible. I mean, it's foreseeable that we can actually, um, you know, have a fighting chance of bringing aging under comprehensive medical control. So there is still a huge funding shortage, especially at the really earliest pre-investable stage, which Venture Research Foundation focuses on. So anyone who wants to help with that, you know, we have a nice friendly donate button at sense.org. But of course, sense.org, our website, also has a huge amount of information. We, we have stuff there that's for everybody, from absolute experts all the way through to uh, complete novices. And of course, there's a you know, contact form, so you can always write to us and ask any questions you like, um, you know, if you can't find the information elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I'll just carry on doing this until we win. Fantastic. Well, I hope it all goes as well as you hope because uh, it's a pretty good future by my view. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show.